Welcome to On Publishing from the Binary Agency. This is Alex Field. And this is Ingrid Beck. Every week, we talk to professionals from the world of publishing. Our goal is to educate, inspire, encourage, and inform. Let's get started. Today, on this episode of On Publishing, we talk to Jane Friedman, uh, publishing veteran and well-known commentator on the business of books. She is the editor of The Hot Sheet, an essential industry newsletter for authors. She's previously worked for uh, different publishers and the Virginia Quarterly Review. In 2019, she was awarded the Publishing Commentator of the Year by Digital Book World. She's well known for speaking into the digital divide and how publishers are making the transition to serving readers in new ways. Uh, her newest book is called The Business of Being a Writer from the University of Chicago Press. Uh, if you're a writer and you're embarking on kind of starting your writing career and you want to know more about the business side of the industry, I, this is a great resource for you to check out. She also runs a number of different courses and teaches different courses on writing and publishing, which you can find along with a whole bunch of other great stuff at janefriedman.com. Uh, this was a great conversation, Ingrid. I really, really enjoyed getting to know Jane. Yeah, it really was. I enjoyed it as well. We talked about what writers need, what qualities they need in order to um, be successful or even just to keep going in what can be a discouraging industry. I thought her insight was really, really great and really positive and hopeful. Yeah. So often writers are getting the message of uh, just rejection, right? I mean, that's that's mm -hmm. a large part of how this 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 business operates. Is no, that's not right for us, or no, we don't want to work with you, or there's there's just silence. You know, you don't mm -hmm. hear from a publisher or an agent or whatever it might be. So her message was the opposite. Yeah, she really encourages you if you're a writer to never give up, to keep going with the fact that it's never over. You know, if you have a bad experience or something doesn't go quite right or as you hoped it would, she encourages you to keep trying and keep pursuing your dream of being a writer. Yeah, the the most required skill of of a writer is patience, she mm -hmm. said. And I, I think we've seen that story so many times that if you're out there and you're pounding the pavement, so to speak, and trying to find a publisher for your manuscript, um, you know, don't stop writing. Keep going. Keep mm -hmm. keep pushing. And uh, and I think that's incredible advice. I think writers do improve over time. I, I know myself as a writer, my writing 20 years ago uh, is very different from from the things I'm writing today. So I, I think that kind of advice is, is incredibly hopeful and important for, for all of us to hear. And she also had great advice for publishers, too. She was talking a lot about, about the publishing side. She has a unique perspective on... Um, the publishing industry as a whole. And also, I think she she recommended some publishers who are doing creative things and also offered some advice as to how publishers can thrive in this digital era. She talked about all the different multiple paths to publishing. And if you're someone who's writing, um, I think Jane's experience largely has, has been in the literary fiction world. But I think there's great advice here for anyone uh, on the path looking to, to get published. So um, I hope you enjoy this episode. So if you have any other questions for us um, or want to suggest topics for us to cover in uh, our podcast, please email us at info at thebinderyagency.com and be sure and put podcast in the subject line. 
Also, if you are a writer and you're looking for other advice, please check out our website at www.thebinderyagency.com. We have a variety of free articles on there, as well as some eBooks covering various aspects of writing and publishing. And without further ado, here is our interview with Jane Friedman. Welcome back to On Publishing, and our guest today is Jane Friedman. Jane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Alex. Well, I know we are just now getting to know each other as we talk, but tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about the work that you're doing right now. You do a lot of different things. You're speaking, you're blogging, you have the hot sheet that you do. Tell us, give us a, a picture of what your day looks like. Well, since 2014, I've been a full-time freelancer. So what my day looks like since then has kind of morphed over time as my business has changed. And I'm sure we'll get into some of the the details of what that's like. But you know, I have a fair amount of client work that I do every day, probably two to three hours worth. It could be editing, it could be consulting appointments. And then I have another few hours of work just running the business, uh, planning for speaking engagements, writing the hot sheet, that type of work. So tell us a little bit about how you came to start your own business. I know you have a background in um, publishing, but we're curious about what what spurred you to um, to launch this business. Part of it was necessity. So mm-hmm. I was working at a literary journal in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I'm still at. Um, okay. the Virginia, it's the Virginia Quarterly Review out of the university here. Oh, yeah. And I had been recruited for the position I took. I relocated from Cincinnati, but it was not a good fit. Um, mm. And after two years, it, it was time to leave. Um, and if I hadn't left, um, I probably would have been fired. <laughs> so, oh, <no. laughs> so, you know, it's usually better to just uh, more elegantly leave at that point. Right. And, you know, but the, the good news is I had been doing all sorts of independent work for years at that point. Mm. And in fact, it was that tension that was part of the problem with my day job, as mm. you might call it. You know, I mm-hmm. was... I was still speaking, I was blogging, I was doing a lot of work that had no direct relationship to my position at the Virginia Quarterly. Mm. And so, you know, bosses can get jealous yeah. when that sort of thing happens. And so, you know, to then commit to it fully to kind of get that shove, maybe that I ultimately needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and it's been, I've been very fortunate in that I already had that foundation built. I, it had started back in the mid 2000s. I had, you know, 10 years of experience that I could lean on and people knew my name. So it wasn't that difficult of a startup process. I know other people, you know, they struggle for the first few years. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that I had a struggle. It was more about figuring out what sort of work I really wanted to focus on. Where did your your love for, for publishing or for books in general, uh, where did that start? And then how did that lead you to the Virginia Quarterly Review? I would say that the roots of my work go back to childhood. And it's not that it, um, I would say I had this passion or obsession so much as I grew up in a really sleepy rural town. And like the most accessible thing to me were the library, school, books and writing like these things didn't cost me much. Um, Mm -hmm. It didn't require a lot of specialized education, (laughs) of -hmm. which there was really none. So, you know, it was the easiest thing for me to 
go and excel in. And so I participated in school publications and I took all the literature courses I could. And so it, it, it grew out of that. Um, I was always more of a bookish sort of person as a child. And I'm sure that was influenced by my parents. So again, in kind of a lucky turn of events, um, when I was in college, I had a professor who was able to make a connection for me at a publishing house in Cincinnati. I grew up in rural Indiana, not that far away, but a very different feel. Um, And so I was able to get an internship at a publishing company uh, right out of the gate. And that, you know, I've been in publishing basically my whole life in in some way, shape or form. Yeah, we relate to that. I think uh, I've spent pretty much my entire adult life in publishing in some way in you know, journalism or, or book publishing. And I don't think I'll ever get away from it. There's something that gets in you about this industry that, uh, that doesn't mm-hmm. let go. What, what was your role at the quarterly review? Were you an editor there? What did you do there? I was brought in to help rebuild the web presence and the, the digital publication side of the quarterly. There's a big backstory to that journal that I won't go into, but if you go and Google it or look at the Wikipedia page, you will find some of the sad history of the publication. So Mm. I came on board kind of as the journal was rebuilding um, from some tragic events. And for two years or so, like right during the time when everything was revving up online, you know, mm-hmm. during this two-year period, that had, it, it was just fallow, like nothing mm-hmm. had been touched. And so they really needed a jolt of, of new energy. And the, the publisher at the time, he already knew me from my existing work. Um, we had worked together briefly um, when I was a panelist at the National Endowment for the Arts. He had been mm-hmm. the chair. And so he knew that I understood what would need to happen and I would be able to kind of spearhead that. So I got the journal's website relaunched. We started digital subscriptions. We activated a social media presence, et cetera, et cetera. So at the very least, within the two years I was on board, I was able to accomplish some of those key milestones. So it sounds like you really have, you know, you kind of built your expertise in that area um, on the publishing side before you started making that part of your business model yourself and advising people in that kind of marketing themselves and building that digital presence. I was working at a traditional publisher in Cincinnati for about 12 years. Okay. Uh-huh. And it it was a unique company in that unlike other book publishers in particular, it had a very strong direct-to-consumer presence. It had it, it spoke to readers directly about what they wanted. Um, its editors were known to the public, spoke at conferences, not typical of a lot of book publishers where you would actually right. you know, engage with your readership one-on-one. Mm-hmm. So the other unusual part of this company is that it very early on was involved in online products and services. So it, it was the parent company of writersmarket.com, which serves writers um, with market listings. So that mm-hmm. was taken online as a digital subscription in the year 2000. Also, it had a correspondence course or a correspondence school dating back to the 70s. Wow. And so they also took that online as the writers online workshops about that same year. I think very forward thinking um, yeah, for, a, for, sure. for a publisher at that time. And so the, you know, even though it was kind of in the, in the Midwest and in, in an area that most people don't consider innovative, really, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, 
the company just was really strong in that it knew what its customers wanted. And so when I was there from, this was from 1998 through 2010, the, the ramping up of the digital and the online side was just exponential. And so part of my job was to oversee um, the brands move from a more print-based business model to a more digitally oriented model. As someone who who teaches writers, uh, Jane, I know you you've taught at the university level. You teach at workshops. You're you're sharing wisdom for writers all the time. Um, whenever I've taught something, I, I learn that it seems to me I learn that craft even better uh, through teaching it because you sort of have to relearn it in a sense. So I'm curious, what mm-hmm. advice would you have for writers or storytellers about their writing that you've learned over your your time in in teaching them? I think I learned very quickly that. Patience is probably the the most required (laughs) skill. Um, Most people give up before they actually have an opportunity to improve or get better. Um, Mm. The the rejection process grinds them down or they they just have fear, uh, even fear of success in in Mm. some regard. So it's... I see many people just short circuit because they're not getting the sort of validation or encouragement that they think is required to continue. Mm. Um, they're not that you shouldn't seek it, but you do need um, you need to have some kind of internal motivation, some reason to be doing it mm-hmm. aside from other people's um, celebration of it. Because because it does take so long to mm-hmm. succeed. Yeah. Uh, there's a really great book by Stephen Pressfield. The War of Art, which I, I think it, cap- yeah, it kind of encapsulates uh, all of the challenges that I think writers face on a psychological level. And that's usually what stops people. It's not it's not skill. It's not lack of talent. Um, it's it's those other factors. As a writer yourself, writing all sorts of different things, you're writing for the hot sheet, you're you're reporting in a, in a variety of capacities and you're writing your own books. Um, and you have your kind of pulse on the industry and you're seeing, you know, different challenges for, for authors. What are you seeing these days, particularly with regard to the, the digital side of things? Mm-hmm. What sort of challenges and, and often those challenges present opportunities. So what sort of challenges and opportunities are you seeing for writers these days? Uh, I would say there are two that come to mind. One is there's so many different ways to publish now, so many paths to, to success whether that's traditional, self, digital, some combination of those things. And so people just get confused about, well, which one should I is really should I choose, which is most appropriate? A lot of people are worried that if they choose the wrong path, their career is is over, which right. is never the case. Like I yeah. always tell people there's there's no such thing as a uh, a career breaking or career ending move. Um, there's always another book, one would hope. So that's one one area. The other area has to do with social media and having an online presence. Um, some people call it a brand or a persona or or something like that. So some people feel awkward or uncomfortable or they just want to write. They don't want to deal with that more marketing, reader-facing oriented stuff. But you know, the opportunity there is huge and significant mm-hmm. in that the more that you are able to engage with the people who are the end readers or consumers of your work, the more power you have to choose whatever business model or whatever path to publication you like, because you're no longer relying on 
a publisher or a, or an editor or some other influencer to reach your audience for you and just a lot more options open up. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Your first point I really like a lot. We so we're a literary agency primarily. We do some small consulting work as well, but I I find that a lot of writers I talk to they feel like, okay, this is the last book I'm ever going to write. This is a real, it's, it's critical that I get it published soon. And mm-hmm. this is how I think it has to go. Mm-hmm. And just about every publishing experience I've had uh, on both sides of the industry, the publishing side and the agency side, it's pretty circuitous sometimes. It doesn't always happen the way we think. And that's okay. I love that yeah. advice of it's never really over if you keep pushing. Exactly. And that's where the patience comes back into play. And I haven't found out the right way to talk to writers who have this, this attachment to a very particular project or book that you've that you mentioned, you know, like this book has to happen in a certain way and it has to happen on this timeline. And, you know, this is the most important story ever. And it's just like, I really hope you have another book after this (laughs) 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 because the chances of what you want here coming to pass are probably slim. For all sorts of reasons. And there are Mm -hmm. no guarantees in publishing, as you know. No, no, there are not. That's for sure. So you're in a unique position to actually be able to kind of speak to the publishing side too. Um, So I want to kind of flip that question. And um, what opportunities and challenges do you see for publishers at the moment? It depends on the size. I definitely see like in the really large commercial publishers, there is more of a shift to reaching out to readers directly, often through email newsletter Mm -hmm. uh, marketing or some sort of content marketing through websites and blogs and such. Of course, the conventional growth area right now is audiobooks and doing things that are fairly innovative in that space. But, you know, there's still a little bit of a head in the sand, I think, regarding ebooks and all of the pricing issues surrounding that and mm-hmm. also ebook library lending, which right. is kind of a hot topic at the moment. Mm-hmm. It is. For the smaller publishers, the more independent across the country sort of publishers, What I try to encourage in a lot of my essay writing and more kind of future thinking stuff, and this Mm -hmm. is particularly I'm looking at the literary publishing community, which Mm -hmm. I kind of came out of from the Virginia Quarterly Review. Mm -hmm. You know, on that side of things, there's far too much, I think, of a generalist approach. Like we're, we're going to publish excellent literature or high quality literature, you know, Mm. literature of taste. And it's just like, that means nothing today, in in my opinion. But there is this huge opportunity for those types of publishers to be much more focused and mission driven and think about what are the communities that we're serving, you know, go beyond we're publishing excellent literature to a mission that's more like we're going to publish literature that tells enriching stories about the Midwest, which is how Belt Press started. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at the Rust Belt and authors from that area and topics um, dealing with that area. Although I think they're trying to broaden their mission, and I hope mm-hmm. I hope that goes well. I agree with you. I think uh, it's it's easy to be very general and say we're going to publish. Well, I guess in in the same way that we always talk about writers not saying this book is for everyone, right? Um, yes. Publishers should do the same thing. Like we're not publishing for everyone. Uh, let's get specific. Who is yes. our target? And let's get mm-hmm. to that that narrow center point and, uh, and focus. And I think that helps the strategy. I mean, really, there's so much competition for attention out there right now. Yes. So um, that's, that's incredibly good advice. Are you seeing any other examples other than Belt Press, uh, which I was writing down, um, that we should be looking at? Any other publishers? There are certainly um, presses that just seem to be 
really flourishing at the moment. I would love to look at their P&Ls or their balance sheet and see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but like uh, Forest Avenue Press has run out of Oregon. I think she might be based in Portland or thereabouts. She was, I think, even called out by Publishers Weekly as one of the movers and shakers right now. So, I mean, I'd, whether her mission extends beyond publishing quality stuff, I'm not, I'm not sure. But you do feel like there's a very particular sensibility, something that she's really trying to achieve that's almost a force of personality behind mm-hmm. that press. It can be a huge advantage, but also if she has to step back, then what? And there's a coffee house press, which I know some years back, they consulted with Richard Nash, who's well known for his work at Soft Skull, and now is a consultant himself. And you can see in the work that they do, the the kind of the Richard Nash touch, I think, and how they're <laughs> kind of very community oriented, not so book centric. I mean, they're looking at how their writers and how their efforts influence their community rather than being overly focused on we're publishing these books and that's where it ends. So I want to turn back to your own writing. We've had a number of conversations with writers where we kind of dive into what's the process? Like, how do you do it? Because everybody has their own routine or, or how it gets done. And and you have different types of writing, which are almost like different kinds of muscles. So I'm curious, do you have, all right, I'm going to sit down from eight to four and or <laughs> that's little intense. Do you write for a certain time every day? Like, what does that look like for you that works? Uh, and how do you go from, you know, one type of writing the hot sheet versus, um, you know, writing a, a book, for example, what does that look like for you, your process? Well, the books, it's the easiest to speak to, because I do have to basically say I'm devoting every Saturday morning or afternoon for the next year or however long it takes to writing this book, because there is no way, at least with my current lifestyle or or workload, I could work book writing into the weekday. Mm. Um, So it would, it has to be on top of what I'm already doing. The other types of writing, I usually what happens is I leave Mondays and Fridays appointment free. Um, And then that gives me usually some nice large chunks of time to devote to any writing work I have to do. Um, Usually the morning I I try to, if I have any client editing work to do, I I do that first. I get it out of the way and then I can um, decide after that's finished what I have left and what I can work in. Into, into whatever chunk of time is there. I leave email for the very, very end of the day. Um, I try to only check it once. I try to get into it by 3 to 4 p.m. And then by 5.30 to 6 p.m. I have to be done or I just I have to leave it for the next day. So I try to, even though email is important in terms of client work and responding to people, I don't want to have it governing these blocks of time where I need to be producing work. That's really good. I've heard of a few people who, you know, you get bounce backs from certain authors where they're, they're not going to respond to your email for a few days. They only respond on these particular days. That's a good Mm -hmm. discipline. I like that a lot because email can, for some of us, uh, for me, it can rule the, the day and that can get a little, uh, out of out of hand, I suppose. So that's that's helpful then to when you're setting aside time for writing to to not have that in the way. Are you working on any new uh, books at the moment, or any new projects you can tell us about? No books. I think mainly because I'm very focused on developing the hot sheet. So recently, 
I bought out my partner. This publication started in 2015. I began it uh, with a journalist in publishing who, you know, we've been collaborating for years going back to roughly 2011. Mm. And so we started this in 2015. And then over the summer, I took it over entirely. And, you know, keeping up with the pace of that, it's every two weeks, it's roughly... I would say anywhere between 5,000 and 7,500 words per issue, a lot of it reported. I can't afford to be distracted from that with other writing projects at the moment until I get into some sort of a rhythm there. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of work. What For those who don't know, who don't subscribe to the hot sheet already, can you tell us a little bit about what they could expect if they were to sign up? I call it the essential industry newsletter for authors. And it is mainly for authors who are published or who are pretty serious about keeping up with industry changes or or the business side. So it touches on things that are happening that would affect both traditionally published and self-published authors, like, for instance, um, the Audible captions Mm -hmm. thing that's happening right Mm -hmm. now where Amazon and Audible is fighting with the traditional publishers over what's allowed uh, in terms of text display alongside an audiobook playing. Um, so those sorts of things worry authors greatly, of course, because it has deals with rights issues and potentially payment issues. So I cover issues like that, that everyone's talking about, but also some of the little smaller things that maybe aren't on everyone's radar that could have some effects. And I try to always interpret it from the author's perspective. So like if you read Publishers Weekly mm-hmm. and very often Publishers Lunch, which I'm, I've been reading since 98 when I got into publishing, mm-hmm. you know, some of those are really written for more of an insider baseball audience. So I try to keep it as accessible as possible. Um, yeah. Although admittedly, it's still pretty advanced. Even if, if you haven't been published yet and you're still querying, you would probably find most of it a little bit um, off to the side <laughs> of, of what you're focused on. <laughs> So helpful for those who are publishing, but helpful for those who are aspiring too. So there's lots of good for for everybody in there. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I like covering trends as well because everyone mm-hmm. wants to know what are the current trends. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> even though you shouldn't chase the trends, it's nice to know if you are going against them, for example. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you kind of alluded to this earlier, but I wonder in this industry that's constantly changing and can be frustrating at times, how do you stay positive and hopeful uh, about the work that you do? Yeah, I've always been a fairly positive, optimistic person anyway. Mm-hmm. And I've, I mean, if I just cancel out any politics or current <laughs> events, right? If I, if I just focus on what's happening in writing and publishing, I've always felt strongly that authors, they've adapted since the time of Gutenberg. It's not mm-hmm. really, I'm not concerned about how they're going to make their livelihood. I think a lot of the surveys about author income that have these really, you know, declining rates of mm-hmm. earnings and other kind of doom and gloom predictions. I think it's rubbish. I don't, I think it's um, very selective surveying. I don't, mm-hmm. I think it's probably surveying a very particular set of authors who aren't even producing work anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just have a real frustration with some of the doom and gloom stuff that comes out of even major organizations. I don't yeah. think it's helpful. That doesn't mean that there aren't certain things that ought to change, like right. the power of Amazon. Like there are mm-hmm. things that are concerning, mm-hmm. but yep. I think there are far more opportunities out there for writers mm-hmm. and publishers alike. And focusing on what 
is going wrong is just, I think it's counterproductive. You could much better focus your time and energy on what's working because we don't have time enough to invest in all of the interesting opportunities. To give a specific example, there's a lot of concern around piracy Mm -hmm. and also uh, third-party sellers sometimes on Amazon. This stuff is getting a lot of attention in the New York Times and Mm -hmm. and other places. And there is a percentage of it that is legitimately concerning. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think ultimately it will be resolved. But to see authors like with all of this anxiety and anger and frustration and fear, it's just like that is, you are not going to sell more copies Mm -hmm. by focusing on this, especially when it's so outside of your control. I couldn't agree more. I think uh, I've been in this business 20 years now, uh, ish, on or off. um, And I I feel like I've heard doom and gloom types of of stories, doom and gloom predictions, uh, you know, these types of things for the entire time. Uh, since I started, <laughs> like it hasn't gone away. I think book publishing is a hard industry. I think it's a hard business, but there's always innovation. There are people trying new things or just doing good, good work. And I agree with you. There are people out there who are making a good living at it. Sometimes you, you have to work really, really hard to do that, but it is possible. And I think I, I love that hopeful perspective you just shared because I, I share it. Yeah, it is possible. And I think also people have to realize you might have to make compromises here and there. Like you don't mm-hmm. always get everything you want. It's not an ideal world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but also there was never the good old days of publishing. I don't like that right, thinking right. either. That set, that there was this era in which you could just make money hand over fist by writing whatever you wanted. That did not exist ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have a little phrase on our website, which is a little, uh, perhaps a little hopeful, but I, The line is essentially one book can change everything. And we in our own stories have have books that have sort of changed everything or changed the trajectory of our careers or or sent us in another direction of reading. Uh, Jane, tell us about a book or or several books um, that really impacted you in some special way. You know, we all have those unique stories. So what was a a book or two that you can think of that that were important in, in your life? The, the fascinating thing about answering this question, and which is, you know, comes up on occasion when you work in book publishing, mm-hmm. um, is that it's often people I've heard speak who are authors mm-hmm. who've expressed a message in a way that was just so revelatory. And I probably could have got it from a book that they've written, but somehow seeing that message manifested in their in their presence or in a particular environment at a time and a place that has maybe had more resonance. It's not to subvert the power of a book, but often I think of places and events rather than pages of books. Um, and I'm thinking in particular of Richard Nash, who mm-hmm. I'll always remember hearing him speak at a book expo about publishing, about where publishing was headed, about the things we ought to be worried about. I mean, if you want to meet someone who I think is optimistic and sees the opportunities while also understanding the challenges, I can, mm. there are few people I can think of that more personify that than him. And so that really... A lot of my attitude, I think I can chalk up to moments like that. He was one person, um, another person, uh, Mike Shatskin, who, of course, is a big yeah. industry commentator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that is that's an instance where I didn't hear him speak. I read a transcript mm-hmm. of, wow. of, a, of a talk he gave because I wasn't going to the same events that he was. 
And let's see there. I mean, there are some books that have influenced me and changed me, but, but in like very, very personal ways that I don't even know that I'd be able to tie it back to a really good book writing or publishing message. Like Alan DeBotton is one of my favorite mm. authors. He's UK based. He's more well known in the UK. He runs something called the School of Life. He's considered mm-hmm. a popular philosopher. And I started reading his books right when I got into publishing, this would have been in 98. And he wrote at that time, he was really well known for a novel called On Love, which is this just kind of quirky take on relationships, which kind of got updated in the last few years with his second, or like, I think the next novel, he, he did a bunch of nonfiction, and then he published another novel that's basically, again, about love. (laughs) And it felt like his revision to the novel he wrote in 98. He had one of the most popular articles at the New York Times that year, which was why you will marry the wrong person. (laughs) (laughs) And he did a lot of interviews. He had an interview with Ira Glass uh, for This American Life and Mm -hmm. kind of talking about this idea that in love and relationships, we tend to place all of these expectations and idealistic visions that can't possibly be sustained by another fallible human being. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that really has has influenced probably my happiness level in life, that message. But it's it's kind of something that's accumulated over time. Like you can see that thread running through all of his work, not just in this latest novel. Um, and that's, I guess if I were to think about a lesson related to writing and publishing from that, you know, with the writers and their idealistic visions of how things need to proceed. Um, I think, I guess you could, <laughs> reading a little bit of Alan DeBotson wouldn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there we have it. Alan DeBotson, we're going to go check that out. I thought he was a romantic with writing a book called On Love, although a novel, you, you never know. But then you described that New York Times article, maybe not. But I, now I'm intrigued either way. So <laughs> I want to go check that out. <laughs> Um, Jane, thank you so much for your time for, for joining us on, yeah, on the podcast. Uh, really appreciate hearing your insights and some of your story. And uh, I hope we can do it again soon. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of On Publishing. If you loved what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and post a review. This episode was edited by Joey Howell and the music was provided by Not The King. And remember, until next time, one book can change everything. 